So stroke in a cell or CVA, cerebrovascular accident, is a disruption in the cerebral blood flow, secondary to brain attack, hemorrhage, ischemia, or embolism. So when there is stroke, there are four things that can be that, that can cause a stroke. Four things. Stroke can be caused by other one. There's an emboli that is causing the stroke. That's one. There is ischemia that is causing the stroke. Two. Or there is a hemorrhage that is causing the stroke. Or four, better stay, there might be uh, a brain attack. There is a brain attack that is causing the stroke. So there are four things that, that can, there are four ways in which stroke can be caused. Now, in a sense, these four ways are basically divided into two types, making us to only have two types of stroke. That is, we either have a stroke that is ischemic, wherein there is no or decreased blood supply that will cause a stroke, or we might have hemorrhagic stroke where there is a blood supply that causing us to have stroke so there are two ways we're going to have stroke either hemorrhagic or ischemic or other um, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke now under the ischemic stroke you have thrombotic and embolic so under the ischemic stroke it might either be called by a thrombi or an emboli. So we either have thrombotic or embolic stroke that will lead to ischemia. Or we can have brain attack that might cause blood flow to cause stroke. So basically there are two kinds of stroke on in our that can occur. Ischemic there is no blood su supply that will cause stroke or there is increased brain blood supply that will cause stroke. Now, um, Mr. Bala, you, you, you want to come in? Oh, uh, stroke. What do we mean? Where does it get its name from? This is a big word. We keep hearing stroke, 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 stroke. Where does it come from? How does it start? What is the process? Because as a nurse, you need to know. Basically, you are not uh, so much concerned about the pathophysiology of this problem, but there are basic things you will want to know because those basic pressure. That's one of the most important. Even though that's not the only problem. But that's the most important one. When the blood pressure increases, that could lead to rupture of blood vessels in the brain. That could result to what? Ischemic or hemorrhagic. Know that. Those are the key things. And if it's as a result of rupture of blood vessel in the brain, what can we do? 
if it is as a result of ischemia that the, the, the breast cells are deprived of oxygen as a result of a blood clot or something, what do we do? Should we, should we call on the doctor? Should we keep the patient until something bad can happen? So those judgments will help us to just understand what's unfolding with the patient help us to intervene appropriately. So indeed, yes, you are all correct, but we should try as best as possible to make sure that the most appropriate intervention is done either uh, calling on the doctor or doing what we can do if we suspect it's a clot of blood in, in, in the brain, in the blood vessels, or in arteries in the brain, then Remember, if we have uh, left hemisphere uh, blood clot, what part of the body is going to be affected? If we have the left no, hemisphere, no. that's affected. Right. So, okay, so be, why is the right? Why can it be the left, but instead the right? Uh, It's because the two major uh, okay. division of the of the brain works contralaterally. Contralateral. They work opposite to each other. They work together but in opposite directions. So the left controls the right. The, the left hemisphere controls the right side of the body. And the right hemisphere controls the left side of the body. That's contralateral. So if... Uh, uh, there's uh, ischemia, ischemia in the right or hemorrhagic uh, uh, attack in the right hemisphere, the, 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 the left side of the body becomes affected. So that was just another brief teaser to see how why we, we see this way. But all in all, you are all on track, so please look up these major things as uh, Amaro has said. They will help you. There are so many things you need to know. But you cannot get everything from here. You need to read. Read, read, read. And these chapters, uh, they are not much. They are maximum six pages or less. That you can read one day. So, because you need to know what do I do when I'm doing health education mm -hmm. or what do health promotion or about a stroke, what are the basic things I need to talk about when I'm assessing, what do I look for? Those are major things as a nurse that you need to find. During my physical examination, what do I look for? How do I go about my assessment? Please read on those things. Don't forget always your nursing care and interventions. Because nowadays, everything is patient-centered. Patient-centered care. I always forget as a nurse. That's your major thing. Those medication, yes, you know about the medication, but a medication comes with care. Yep. If patient is on this medication, they have the diagnosis, what do we do? What care do we provide? Those are basic things that you need to pay attention to closely because that's where your tests normally will, will focus. They will be asking you to prescribe and do all of those things. 
not easy to be, yeah, you can prescribe, but asking them may not easy to be asking you to prescribe. But they were asking care, intervention, and then, and then, uh, just just before we leave this this section, I'm going to look at a few things here. So let's say the, the kind of stroke I want hemorrhagic. Now, basically, in a hemorrhagic stroke, um, there's a rupture due to brain aneurysm or arterial rupture of the brain of the blood vessels in the in the brain that will cause increased blood flow that increment in the blood flow will cause us to have hemorrhagia or hemorrhage which could cause cva in this situation um the prognosis of this condition that is the prognosis for the client it it, it, it depends on the amount of the amount of blood flow so that can also interfere with the increase intracranial pressure the icp of the brain so the more blood is flowing into the brain, the more you have increased uh, ICP. Now, this hemorrhagic stroke, it depends on how soon we can pick it up. If it's picked up very early, we evacuate the clots that can be in there that will cause the blood to store or, 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 or that will cause, uh, that will help us in that situation, meaning there can be a good prognosis. If we catch it late, it can, it can it can have a bad prognosis for the case of hemorrhagic stroke now then we have thrombotic stroke <clears throat> in thrombotic stroke in a thrombotic stroke what is happening in there is there's an ischemia so when there's a thrombi a thrombi is like a blood clot now the, there are two kinds in here thrombotic and embolic they look alike in terms of how they're going to cause the stroke but it's a slight difference between the two in thrombotic stroke um there's an ischemia occurring that is linked to arteriosclerosis so in thrombotic stroke there's an arteriosclerosis occurring arterial that will take the are plaques there are plaques formation in the blood little blood plaques that will get into the blood vessels that will block the blood flow so those plaques will increase the it narrows the lumen of the blood vessels which can cause blockade and this blockade or this blockade will lead to um the artery lumen being shut down there'll be an occlusion so in thrombotic stroke it, 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 there's an occlusion of the blood vessels due to the plex formation in thrombotic stroke now in the case of embolic stroke embolic stroke in embolic stroke, there is ischemia also that is caused by a blood clot that occurs from other places in the body that travels to the to the brain. Example, you did you did a left surgery and you having DVT, deep vein problem. Now there's a blood clot that occurs somewhere you had a surgery. Let's say you, you had a knee surgery. After the knee surgery, there was a blood clot created from the knee surgery. That clot traveled from the knee to the brain. So that would become an embola. That become an embolic stroke. So the difference between thrombotic and embolic. Embolic is a clot formation that occurs somewhere else in the body that travel 
as long as it has traveled, it becomes embola. If it is caught by plaques formation, it is thrombi or thrombotic stroke. Then we have the ischemic stroke. Now, the ischemic stroke, the ischemic stroke, it is basically, it could be thrombotic or it could be embolic. So, the ischemic stroke could be either thrombotic or it could be embolic. It will cause ischemia, it will cause decrease or it will cause blood flow cessation. That becomes ischemic. Um, it can be resolved when we administer fibrinolytic medication. When we administer fibrinolytics, fibrinolytics or latex medications. So these drugs, they break down clots in the body. Let's understand one thing. <clears throat> We have heparin. Heparin does not break down clots. It does not dissolve clots. What it does is it reduces the formation of new clots. So in the ankles, a patient is having ischemic stroke. What would the nurse anticipate? The doctor ordering for this patient. Will order fibrinolytic medication instead of blood thinner medication? So we'll get the patient, the patient will take uh artipase, which is um uh which is a tissue plasminogen activator, rather than taking heparin, which is a blood thinner medication. So let's also the part. So these drugs, you can also the drug between heparin, the TPA medications, the aspirins, the comandines. Know which one can be given. These are just that can be confusing. You take a time, look at this medication, and know where the four, what each one can be, what each one can be administered, and why they can be administered. So when you are reading this medication, you gotta look at these things very well in the end class. Now, another thing in here is, um, if there's an ischemic stroke, and we administer this. Medication that is the art, the TPA, the tissue plasminogen activator, or the artipase. If we remember the artipase, is A L T E P L A C E. Artipase medication. Uh, if we can administer within three to four and a half hours, we can have good problems. That is, if somebody had a ischemic stroke, and that's why when there's a stroke right away, you have to call the ambulance. You have to call now because. If it is ischemic stroke and there's a blood clot that causing ischemia to the brain, if it is if it is if it is resolved in three to four point five hours, it will have a good prognosis. If that time passes by, is that that's it. There will be no help in it. Any question? Now so, but I raise uh, raise an important points, some some important points. Let's look at those points he raised. And uh, one of those points is when we have left and right stroke. Now, what become affected? Remember, we did a question yesterday. We said, um, I think the question the question was the patient had a left sided stroke. Which of the following symptoms would the patient exhibit? Because the left and right side of the brain, he missed, uh, the left and right hemisphere of the brain control certain bodily function certain function we that is controlled by the left side 
if the left side of the brain gets damaged, those functions cannot be performed by the patient anymore until the patient regain normal health status. Likewise, the left side of the brain. Now, so in the left brain hemisphere, um, it is responsible for our language skill. The left side of the brain, the left brain hemisphere, the left side of the brain is relevant for one language skill, language, mathematics skills, mathematics. It's also responsible for when it comes to like um uh how do we analyze given event, given scenario? So A students, smart students, they will have a very good functioning left brain hemisphere. So we who like uh we who do not understand a lot of, a lot of mathematics. Meaning our left side is not fully functional compared to our right side. Because the mathematicians, the those who have good language skills, understand two, three languages, um, who can analyze events and can come up with good analysis, they have good left brain hemisphere for them. Then so when we have the left brain hemisphere dysfunction or problem of the with, with stroke, if our left brain hemisphere was affected. Guess what happened? We are going to have agnosia. We we'll have this condition. Meaning, we are we cannot recognize familiar objects. So when you have a stroke, the left side of the brain got damaged. You cannot recognize your cell phone. You will see you you, you cannot recognize what is a cell phone. So we we'll have agnosia. Meaning we cannot recognize familiar objects. That's one. We're going to have Alexia. We'll have Alexia. Meaning, Alexia simply means we will have problem with reading. We cannot read anymore. We lost our reading skills. We can also have a graphia. A graphia simply means when we have a letter stroke, we cannot write well. We lost our writing skills in the left brain hemisphere. Then we can also have right-sided hemiplegia. So when the left side becomes affected, our right side of our body will become hemiplegic, meaning the whole half of our body becomes paralyzed. We experience right-sided paralysis when we have left brain hemisphere. That's what happened. Now, another thing under here is we'll have... Uh, we cannot express our we, we have aphasia. We cannot express ourselves well because we lost our language speaking skill. Or we have less other brain or uh, dysfunction. Now we will have depression. We'll become slow to do things. We'll have visual changes. And we how we call him him We'll call him uh Meaning, we cannot see objects in totality. In the full object, we will have loss of visual fee. Uh, we will have lo loss of visual fees in one or both eyes. We cannot have. We cannot see object from the whole thing. We will have. I don't have loss of vision or in both eyes. We will have that. Then, when we have red sided hemiplegia, red sided hemisphere problem, 
what are we going to see? Now, in the rest side of our body, the rest side is being controlled. Um, in the rest side of the body, give me a in the rest of the body, the rest side is being controlled. Um, the right side of hemisphere, the, the right hemisphere stroke. But we have that. Guess what's happening? The rest side is for visual, for visual or vision. The rest side is also for awareness, um, awareness and other things. That's about the rest side. So if we have that, we'll have auto perception of the de perception deficit we don't know where our, uh, we cannot understand where we are we'll have confusion this deal with our our um our body movement sports and other things so we'll have the change occurring in here we'll have visual changes we'll have unilateral neglect syndrome meaning we'll be able to once our meaning our left side we cannot visualize our left side because of the rest of the hemisphere stroke these are, things, these are things we're going to have when you have a rest of that stroke. Now, um, then there are a lot of nursing intervention for this stroke, which we want to take our time and read it and look at them because it is important to look at all these different, uh, all these different uh, um, side effects, nursing management for the for this stroke condition. Monitor the virus sign every one or two hours. Notify the doctor very uh, when the patient has a higher diastolic pressure of above 180. And a BP that is systolic above 180, you want to notify the doctor. And you want to make sure any diastolic above 110 should be of concern. So any BP above 180 or 110 should be of concern to your doctor. You should have the doctor notify. It could, be, it could be it could be a stroke and stroke is a silent killer that can kill you just in the instant so you do not have to have previous high bp to have a stroke you can have the first time you can have a bp going on high you're going to have a stroke right away it's possible in stroke want to conduct cardiac assessment we do the ekg for the patient we make sure we measure the patient in uh, intracranial pressure we assist the patient in communication if the patient has stroke deficit. Feeding, they will have dysphagia. So we must come in to provide feeding for them directly by ourselves, not by the nurse or by the UAPs when they have stroke. We come in, we do liquid modification or diet modification, thin liquid. You can give water or juice. Now, this one is important for the ankles. Thin liquid. Um Thin liquids will give water or will give juice to the patient. For nectar, nectar, we can administer for the nectar. Um, we can go ahead and uh, administer cream soup or nectar. We'll give the cream soup. Like you have those uh, cream soup you make for the patient. Like, uh, you have like, like uh, those thick soup. You can, you can make it for them. Um, we can have honey like full like yogurt. You can have yogurt. You can have honey. For the thick, for the spoon thick, you can give pudding. You can give the client cooked cereal, depending on what the data will prescribe. You can also give a uh, period. So period diet can become the reason where you will 
uh, grand fool in the period they can take it when they are having this fight here we can also get a patient mechanical auto diet chop diet we cut the food to prevent this phagia problem or to, to prevent choking we can give different kind of food depending on the doctor prescription these are different kind of food constituents that we must know to be able to give example of them or if we see the example in the angle we'll give it a, we'll give it a recognize it and know what they, what they are talking about we want to make sure we maintain good skin integrity we have them repositioned frequently we we, we prevent bony area of the body which we call bony per, uh, uh, permanence to stop resting on the bed which can cause basal or decubital ulcer we want to make sure we encourage passive range of motion so the active one is what the patient does by himself or herself the passive one is what the nurse will help them to move their body parts to involve into different range of motion that become passive range of motion we want to make sure if the patient has a uh, homonymous uh hemianopsia uh, homonymous homonymous hemianopsia or, or hemianopsis in this situation the loss of vision in both eyes um you want to make sure when they have this condition what becomes your concern it, it asked this 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 question in the ur so when a patient has this condition your concern becomes when you take food to the patient make them to scan the room if meaning 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 one of their eyesight is is not functional so when you take the food then in the chair you want to tell them to what to use their one eye or the one side of their face to scan the room and know where everything is in the room to make sure because they will feel like what they are looking for it is not that because it is that particular object it is not in their eye it, it is not in a visual fee for sure so if they let you all want to put everything into their rest side because where they have the rest side vision is where they will look many at times so if you give them water to, 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 to drink water you got to place it on the rest side of the of the bed if they have their call light or uh, their call bell you got to be on the rest side of the bed if they have their urine or the bed pain it needs to be on the rest side of the bed if they have their medication uh packet and other things food spoons or utensils it got to be on the rest side of the bed because they can only see in the red visual field. The left visual field is impaired. These are things you want to pick up for the patient who having this condition. Um, you want to prevent deep vein thrombosis by asking them to wear sequential compression stockings. In this, in these groups homes, in this nursing home, we have those stockings that they're going to wear the whole day at bedtime. We remove them. They go to bed in the morning. They put them back on to prevent deep vein thrombosis. Um, you want to make sure the client who experienced stroke, they will, have, they will have decreased endurance, they will have impairment, imbalance, and other things. You want to make sure you give them more rest period. They can use assisted devices like wheelchairs. Sometimes they can use um, walker and other things to help them move around. Make sure those things are appropriate to them because if, 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 if those things are not appropriate, if those devices are not appropriate, it might cause harm instead of helping them. Um, you want to make sure 
provide for them uh, medications. Some of them will take anticoagulant, which include heparins, you have comandines, you have enosoparins. These are all different anticoagulants. Every one of them has different, has different function. The, the, the heparin has more strength compared to the enosoparin. Enosoparin is a low-dose heparin medication. It is low dose. So we can administer only in the hospital or in healthcare setting, we can administer heparin. We do not administer it at home because it has so many side effects. But we can administer the low dose heparin at home, like the inosoparin. That can be administered at home just for the ankles. We can administer coumadin at home, but not heparin. Um, we make sure when we are administering heparin. What do we have as the, as the antidote for heparin? We got to have protamine sulfate for heparin. And then for the coumadin, we got to have vitamin K. And if we are administering heparin, we got to do the APTT for the patient regularly. And if we are administering coumadin, we got to do for them the PT regularly. These are things we must know for the anchors. Heparin, antidote is protamine sulfate. We got to monitor APTT, the, the Activated protein type or APTT for the heparin. When we are administering coumadin, we're going to always have vitamin K as an antidote, and we're going to also do the PT time regularly for the patient to make sure the patient is not having or their bleeding time is not increased. Now, these are things we're going to remove for this patient. Then, then we have um, the antiplatelet medication. They can also have. Antiplatelet medications. Can someone show me an example of antiplatelet medication? Example of antiplatelet uh, that we can administer in the case of stroke. Example. Nice starting. Is that? Is it nice starting? Anything that starts with the starting? Uh, no. Aspirin. It's an antiplatelets. It's the most common we're going to see. So, anesthetic medications um, will have some antiplatelets effects. We should look at that. We have other drugs that we give. They are tromolytics medications uh, or the retiplase recombinant. Or we can look at the antiplatelet medications. The phenytone. Phenytone can be given in this situation. Or we have the carbapentin or the neuro or the neurotin. These drugs are not commonly uh, used following stroke unless the client develops seizure. Then we can administer a lot of the stroke medications. Any question? Any question? I have a question. Yeah.
physical therapy, mm-hmm. occupational therapy. Mm-hmm. They have home um home health aid. Mm-hmm. They have um nurse, and they have like different different options like you can pick. So my thing is somebody that um paralyzed one side and I'm off it twists a little on one side. Can they have like physical and um? Occupational tech, huh? That then let's ask the question back to you or the class because we, 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 we've discussed in this class physical therapy versus occupational therapy. Would they need one? Which one they would need? Would they need both? Why would they need both? Can we answer that question? So you were in your community and they call you as the student that they've been seeing you wearing, uh. You've been going to Jessica of nursing for the past two, three months. Or those are two, three years. They see everything just in the morning in your scrub going to class. Then uh, your enter call you. Oh, uh, can you please come? So your dad here and uh, he, uh, uh, your uncle has this problem. Where can we take him to? Physical therapist, occupation therapy, or can we take him to both? Why? What would be your answer? Let's see what I would Uh-huh. Will he need both you, or only one? Anybody? It, it's I, not even you. It's not even you alone. I'm, I, I, I'm asking the class. Well, what kind of question was that? I was asking. So, what do we do? Okay, simple as what do we do? Occupation therapy and physical therapy. Someone, someone who having stroke, will they need both or which one will they need? So she the, said it, he had a stroke uh-huh. and he and he lost function of one side. I think they would need both. Of. Why would they need both? Because you got, the, for the occupation therapy, you got to teach him everything how to right? how to use a hand. On his finger. Which one? Which one is in the hair or finger? Which one is in the hair or finger? Which one? On the opposite side. Which one? Is it physical or occupation therapy? We want a well defined uh answer to these questions. So in this class we've done both we've done the question. The last time we did we're doing fundamental. I went from start to end. I went to case management. I went to the pharmacist, the role of occupation therapist, speech therapist, or okay. So let's start with OT. The person with me. Uh huh. Okay. So let's start with occupational therapy. Who comes the PT? What? Why would they need OT? They need OT because OT actually like deal with uh. Okay, so yeah. OT do of ADLs, right? Yeah. Such as what? Such as uh, 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 helping them uh, for them to learn how to dress themselves, uh, all the small, small things that dressing and stuff. Then the PT. And the PT will help them to uh, gain strength within the 
Okay. That was very silly. So, two things are on saying here. When you hear OT, think on ADLs. Diving, dressing, combing your hair, all things is about OT. Occupational therapy is about OT. PT is about body movement. How your body can move back to normality. How you can use your body parts to function normally, to move your arm, to walk around, to lift your arms or to do your abduction, your your, your, your abduction, your adductions, your flexions, your your extensions, or how to do of what? Your PT. So if you walk into a PT or into a PT clinic, what do you expect to see? You walk in the physical therapy clinic, what do you expect to see as the tools were used to to increase functioning. What do you expect to see? You see, like, you see crushes, you see, uh, um, uh -huh. for, for the PT, they're going to have the patient how to use the walker or the king. So we're going to see walker, the kings, yeah. crutches, wheelchairs. Those are our PT, right? So if you walk into an OT setting, what do you expect to see in the OT? In the OT clinic? OT, they'll come in the morning and get you under the bed, take you in the bathroom. They want to know how you'll be able to undress yourself. Mm -hmm. Or try how to comb your hair, brush your teeth. They just want to know the kind of activity you can do with the hand that does not function. Now, so in the case of hemiplegia, we wouldn't need OT or we wouldn't need PT or we wouldn't need both. Um, both. Okay. So that so answer the question, right? So in the end class, you saw how that question came to her. She saw that question in her end class or in her, along, her, along the way. So that means when you have a stroke and you lost a portion of your body, you cannot, you, you have a hemiplegia, you got to do both OT and what? And PT, it will help us to get back to functioning both our, for both our ADLs and our body movement. Okay, it was a delay. All I plan questions. So they have home health nurse, mm -hmm. and then um, uh, aid somebody to help. So will the person have a nurse? And I understand the therapy part. Mm -hmm. Will the person have both nurse and a, on a home aid or just a nurse? Now back to you. What's the role of a of a, 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 a of a home health aid. Why do we want to employ home health aid? Why? To help with the person like AD or like live. Now, would they need a home health aid? Yes, they will. They will need yes. it because we need home health to come ahead of the water, cook for them, to wash mm -hmm. their clothes, to help them to groom their hair, to shower, to clean their nails, clean their. No, those are all ADLs, right? So yes, they would need a home health aid. Would they need an OT? Yes, they would need OT. Would they need other people? They would need because we are trying to reintegrate into society. So we need everything about them to be fixed for them. We'll do that okay. for them. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other question? I think our time is already gone. Uh, we we. We actually enjoying you doing a very serious note. Is that uh you wanna come in? <laughs>
Somebody said, Hey guys, yeah, uh -huh. go ahead. Uh, 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 somebody actually said, You you hit the nail. How can they say it? You can hit it right on the head, you can hit on the head. Every time you come in, you provide a well defined uh, structure addition to what we're saying. <laughs> Okay, so uh, to, to run up, there are a few assignments that were given. Let us please try to look at them, read them. Uh, if you don't read, most of these things will come and go. You hear them today. If you don't follow up on them, it's like, for example, you have a patient, uh, you saw them. You will get the return date and they refuse to follow up. Do, do you think they will get better? Mm -hmm. Do you think things will get okay? They may not get, there's a likelihood that things will not get okay. So it's the same thing. You will listen to all these different discussions. You are given a piece of work to do. Please try to do them. It will help you. It's for your own good. As you do them, as you follow up, it will help you to remember. The more you, you play with these materials, your brain cells will keep them. So uh, when we talk about short-term memory, long-term memory, so the frequent uh, uh, interaction with the materials develops into your long-term memory. It's not the short-term memory that converts into the long-term memory. It's the frequency of what you do that makes the long-term memory to be functional so the more you read the more you play with these things your long-term memory become active so let's try i know it's difficult with all the challenges but please try ask all the questions bring all your confusion and then we can see what to do about them we can always discuss it together and find a solution so thank you amadu thank you for uh, everyone for today i'm glad to be a part of this you know, uh, like I, sometimes I'm laughing at myself because I, I try to run from medication to just <laughs> deal with talking. <laughs> now I see myself okay. talking about medication and all of those things. So sometimes when, when we are having discussion with all of doctors and other people, I say, guys, uh, I'm tired with medication. I want to do talking. I just want to talk. <laughs> so now I see again coming back to talk about medication and this, this. Anyway. That's it. It also helped me so that I don't forget completely. So, thank you guys. For example, in spinal cord injury, if the nerve that controls our bladder is being affected, meaning we are going to have urinary retention. Meaning to pass urine, we have to use urinary character to pass urine. If the nerve that controls um our rest serve our body. If those nerves are affected in spinal cord injury, it could be traumatic injury, it could be through disease conditions. Our our rest side will, uh, will, will have some dysfunction and then we will experience uh, paralysis of that particular side or we might experience paralysis of that particular side. So depending on where it's affected in spinal cord injury, that's how we can experience uh, the dysfunction. Now, when there is spinal cord injury, this affects our motor functions, it affects sensory functions, it can affect our reflexes, and uh, 
it can also affect um like other control system we use to eliminate body waste like bladder dysfunctions or like passing feces and other things when our spinal cord become infected uh, become affected it, it, uh, there, there will be dysfunction in all this area of our body now what is important here is to know the various the various level from the cervical vertebrae coming down to the thoracic uh, thoracic to the lumbar to the sacral vertebrae we must know at which one of these areas um, we are going to have problem and when there's problem occurring in this area what can be um, the effect on our body the cervical the thoracic the lumbar or the sacral vertebra along these areas when there is injury occurring in this area uh, our body can have some other problems so if we have it at t1 or t2 or we have it at t4 or maybe a C3, C4, what's going to happen to us? Which part of the body becomes affected? It is important to know these things exactly to be able to move ahead to the ankles. Now, injuries in the cervical area, it leads to um, quadriplegia. When we have spinal cord injury in the cervical area, it leads to quadriplegia. Uh, quadriplegia. Um, injury in this area will have quadriplegic effect on our body. Injury is in, uh, in uh, cervical injury. Now, this can result in paralysis of all four of our extremities and our trunk. So here we will have the four extremities having having problem plus the trunk. The trunk will also have problem in here. That's what happening in the case of cervical injury. Now, in the end class, they're going to ask you a question like, oh, a patient who has spinal cord injury at C3, which of the following could this patient suffer from? And they will list for you all different conditions that lead that derive from paralysis. And you have to see the injury and figure out what portion of the spinal cord that this injury is deriving from. And if you do not, if you don't study this, to remind it become difficult. Now, um, if you have trunker instability, also result in uh, lesions in the upper thoracic area. Trunker instability. Now, in the upper thoracic part of the body, upper thoracic area of the body, there can be injury. When the injury occurs in this area, um, we can experience trunker instability. Trunker T-R-U-N-C-A-L, trunker instability. We're going to experience this happening around here. Now, and uh, we've seen someone who has tuberculosis, someone who has TB can experience uh, paralysis of the lower extremity. When you have TB, a certain portion, you can have paralysis. So, uh, at the end of this particular topic, we'll know exactly what's the cause of us having a TB and paralysis at which location we can have this. Now, the level of the core involved detects the consequences of what's going to happen to us. That is, the portion of the vertebra that is, that is involved into the injury, or that, that is involved with the injury, determines where or which part of our body will have the paralysis. For example, if we have it at C4, if there's an injury occurring at C4 um, or above 
it posed great risks to our spontaneous ventilation due to of, of, of the phrenic nerve. So any injury occurring in, in this area at C4 or above C4, it leads to a breathing problem. When we have any injury at C4 or above C4, go up to C3, C above that, uh, above this area, we can have we can have breathing problem because down here, the phrenic nerve is around here, and this phrenic nerve helps us to exchange, uh, to exchange uh, ventilation, or, or it help it helps out with ventilation. So any injury above C4 or at C4 will put us at risk for ventilation problem. Now, another thing is not all fracture at these areas can cause spinal cord injury. That is, you might have fracture along the vertebra. It is not all the spinal, it is not all the injury occurring along the vertebra can cause spinal cord injury. You can have a fracture of the of the vertebra, but the spinal cord is not involved. So, so the spinal cord is that nerve, is that uh, is that very soft, dedicated uh, uh, delicate nerve that runs through the spinal uh, through the vertebral column from the base of the brain towards the, the pelvic area. And it is so small, it is so tiny, it is in there, and it has so much other things around like it has the CSF, it has some other things that protects it from getting injured. So sometimes we can have a fracture of, of the vertebra. We are still not having spinal cord injury. So let's 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 understand that. Now, what is important on it also is um, spinal cord injury range from contusion or incomplete lesion along the spinal cord. Sometimes we might not have injury from trauma. Sometimes it might be due to other contusion. So contusional injuries can also cause spinal cord injury. Or there is some form of a, like in the case of a, 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 a like in the case of a lesion, when there is lesion growing in here, like in TB, TB lesion can grow along the spine. With TB lesion, it can also cause spinal cord, uh, spinal cord injury, which will lead to paralysis. So if you work in a TB annex where they have TB patients, you see that 70% of TB will sit in wheelchair, they will use wheelchair. So those individuals, they have what we call the extra pulmonary TB that are not defined or that are not uh, situated in the lungs. So we have two kinds of TB. We have the pulmonary TB. This, is a, this affects the lungs. And we have the extra pulmonary TB. Now the extra pulmonary TB can be situated in the bones, in other part of body organs. So the one that's sitting in other bones and other parts of the body organ, all in the all in the lungs, these ones can create lesions along the spinal cord. And when these lesions are created, they can create, they can uh, cause spinal cord spinal cord injury, which can cause paralysis of the lower extremities. Now, another important thing here is, um, it could be a complete lesion that will take the entire area, that will block the entire, uh, that will push aside the spinal cord. Sometimes it can be incomplete lesion that will just push aside portion of the spinal cord. So it depending on the amount of injury that is being caused 
told the spinal cord that's how grave you are, that's how severe the injury is going to be along the body part that is affected. Now, when there's an incomplete lesion, there will be voluntary movement and there will be sensation below those areas. So you will still feel movement, but it is not significant. You will not have the full movement. Take for example, if there's, if there's a spinal cord injury that will cause maybe like a, let's say in the case of, in the case, this, this, this is a spinal cord running in here. And if there's a lesion that is growing from this point coming here, it has pushed the spinal cord to, the, to this extent, but it has not covered the entire spinal cord. We will still feel sensation into the body part that is affected. We will not have lots of sensation. But in the case where there is a complete blockade, we will have lots of function and we will also have lots of sensation. So if it, if it is incomplete, we might have lots of function, but we might still have sensation. But if it is completely blocked by a lesion, we'll have both sensational loss and we'll have an incomplete loss of function of the particular body parts. Now, when we have a spinal cord injury, what are those things we look for? What are those tests? Um, you went to the ankle and ask you, somebody had a spinal cord injury. What are the tests you anticipate for us to run to know exactly what are we having, what injury are we having in there? So let's look at some of those tests that we run when there's a spinal cord injury. Can someone tell us some of the tests that we're going to do? What are some of the laboratory tests we can we can order for a patient who is suspected of having spinal cord injury? The CHF. The CHF? Yeah, it's the reverse spinal fluid. Okay. We'll do the CSF, right? Yes, the reverse. So why won't why do we want to do the CSF? Why? Can someone tell us why do you want to do CS CSF in the case of spinal cord injury? Because there should be a reason why I want to do a test um, when there's an injury occurring. Mm, Mm -hmm. the brain function, the nowhere, the brain is expected or... Alright. So besides spinal cord injury, uh, besides the cerebral spinal fluid, what else can we do? Can someone help us? Let's move ahead and see why we're we doing it. I think we can also do a CD scan. A what? A CD scan. A CD scan, okay. Someone said we can do a CT scan. Why won't we do a CT scan? So we'll do a CT scan to know the extent of damage done and the what the location of damage done. So the CT scan, MRI, CAT will do everything in there, which we can do also X-ray. So we can do X-ray. We can do MRI, 
we can do the CT scan, um, we can do the CAT scan. All these tests can help us to note the location and the extent to which the damage is done. Because depending on the damage done and the location of the damage, that's how we can come in to provide help for our patient. What else can be done? What else can be done? Is your garage open up? What else can be done? So beside this test, are there other tests that we can do also to evaluate what's happening? We can do other blood tests, right? We can do the CBC, we can do the ABGs, we can do urinalysis, we can do the hemoglobin. All these tests can be done to verify for us to evaluate other the platelets, WBC, and to monitor what is internal bleeding. Because sometimes when there's internal bleeding, we can have one called injury, there's internal bleeding that we cannot know at the beginning. The time at which we will get to know is already late to intervene. So we can do all these tests to know. Now um, when a patient has spinal cord injury, um, we have to look at the nursing care, which is very important when it comes to, when it comes to spinal cord injury. One of those nursing cares is we got to put in a care to look at the patient respiratory status. So the respiratory status is a big thing we want to look at for a patient who is having spinal cord injury. Now, under here, most importantly, we want to monitor the breathing of the patient because we said injury occurring at the C4 or above the C4 will inv might involve the phrenic nerve. And the phrenic nerve plays a major role in ventilation. So to know what the patient is having a, a, a problem at the phrenic nerve level or at C4 or above, we want to monitor the person's breathing pattern, the person's pulse oximetry, to know that they are having good circulation or good perfusion, to look at the patient, uh, to look at the patient breathing the breath rate, whether it is 12 or it is between 12 to 20 or it is above or below. All these are factors that we can do to determine whether the patient is really breathing well or not. All these things bar down to the phrenic nerve. Now, um, involuntary breathing can be affected due to lesion above or at the phrenic nerve or any swelling that might occur at the level of C4 or above the C4 can affect the phrenic nerve because the phrenic nerve runs from C1 down to C4 so anything happening around there that, that will affect that particular area either to be a lesion created in there or there's a swelling in there that swelling or the lesion can affect the C4 or the, or the phrenic nerve that's what happened in there. Now, um, lesions in the upper area, the cervical or in the upper thoracic area can also impair involuntary movement. So lesions at um, the cervical area or the upper thoracic area, the upper thoracic location of the vertebra, lesions in those areas or 
trauma in those areas that will affect our body parts leads to in, leads to vulnerable movement of the muscle that control breathing. So the muscle that control breathing. Now our lungs, those muscles that are formed around the lungs, those muscles that are formed around the lungs, they are controlled by spinal nerve or by nerves that are formed within the cervical area or upper thoracic area. And that's why after spinal cord injury, we will look out for the breath rate, pulse ox, or saturation to know exactly where we are. Another thing is we'll look out for the depth, the, the, the depth at which we are exchanging gases and the rate at which gases are being are being are being, uh, are being achieved. Now, if we have any abnormality that have to do with our O2 exchanges, we go in and provide um, for the patient means to breathe and to help them suction. Now want to go in also and assist them with cough assist if they want if if they cannot cough out because when there's an injury occurring around here the muscles the muscles that are going to help the person to cough out those muscles are impaired they become dysfunctional so meaning we have to go in and help them to do a cough assist for them to cough out fluid within the lungs other than that they're going to create pneumonia within the lungs because they are not breathing well and if, we, if we're not breathing well fluid will sit in the lungs and when fluid sets in the lungs, it leads to pneumonia. That's why we'll check for all these things that they are present. Now, now uh, uh, the next thing we want to do is to teach the client about how to use a synthesis spirometer. So when the client has an injury around the C4 or upper thoracic cavity that will affect the person's breath, person breath rate, we'll teach them how to use incentive spirometer. Now, this instant spirometer comes in the ankle a lot, and I always say that when we have questions that come in the ankle a lot, like procedure, we want to make sure we perform this procedure on our own. We do it over and over to be able to master it. Now, we can just read it. If you read it, it's not going to stay with you forever. You want to go to the bathroom or go to your mirror and stay in front of your mirror and perform this procedure, whatever you have. It does not have to be the real spirometer to use. You could use a bottle, you could use anything in your room to make sure perform the procedure over and over. Put on your YouTube video, watch how the, how the procedure is being done on YouTube and demonstrate the procedure after it is done on, on YouTube. Do it one or two or more times. The more you do it, the comfortable it becomes uh, to do them at the ankles. So the patient will use instinctive spiral meter and will encourage them to do coughing and deep breathing exercise because if our lungs are not expanding and coming in or going out well we will be at risk for so many different infections so using instant spirometer can help to get rid of the infection using deep breathing exercises and, and, and other coughing techniques can help us to expel what is being in the lung for a longer period of time any question Any question? When we have spinal cord injury, um, tissue perfusion becomes our problem. We're going to have decreased perfusion. And uh, this will lead to neurogenic shock. 
Neurogenic shock is a complication that requires emergency when we have spinal cord injury. Now, but we cannot have the spinal cord injury and then the shock comes in right away. No, it does not happen just on the scene sometimes. Many at times we can have neurogenic shock within 24 hours after the spinal cord injury. So, in the end class, we need to watch out for the time. And there is something I want us to keep learning because I will keep talking about it. It is important that's why I keep talking about it. When we have a condition, we look out for the complication of that condition. That complication, we want to understand when does it come about? When does it arise? If it's coming about in 24 hour period of time, the next thing, what are the signs and symptoms of this complication that come about in these conditions? Because in the end class, many at times, they might not give us the name of the complication. They will give us the symptom of this complication and they will ask us to determine what complication is, is, is the patient going through. So we have to learn these things just by doing this. So we're going to have a neurogenic shock. It is a spinal cord injury complication. This will lead to immediate loss of communication with other nerve within this area which can maintain normal muscle tone. Now when, when our normal muscle tones are not maintained due to neurogenic shock, it leads to a significant decrease in our blood pressure, in our BP. So we're going to have significant hypotension which becomes a life-threatening hypertension for our patients when they have this condition. So now our, now our, our goal is to prevent neurogenic shock when we have spinal cord injury and that can be done by monitoring our perfusion so the anchor asks you a patient had a motor vehicle accident and they will give you symptoms of neurogenic shock they will ask you what is or, or what is your priority or they ask the patient had a spinal cord, in, spinal cord injury the nurse appear on the scene what is the nurse greatest uh, concern our concern is to prevent complication and that will be you're going to shock. Then what can you do? What action will a nurse take to prevent complication? To monitor the tissue perfusion by looking at the pulse oximetry reading. So at this point, you do not want any pulse ox reading below 90. Because anything that drops below 90, it means if you having decreased perfusion, which will lead to problem. Then this will move on. It will have significant hypotension which become a life-threatening complications with spinal cord injury within the first 24 hours after the injuries now um my next thing becomes what can we do what can we do to monitor for this complication what can be done you had a patient who is at risk for neurogenic shock what can you do to prevent neurogenic shock or what can you do to Care for a patient who has this complication. Anyone? What can we do to monitor for neurogenic shock? So you, so you were at the hospital. And the patient came to the ER, they had a motor vehicle accident, 
and uh, the EMS team that pick up the patient from where the accident occur, they have restrained the patient or of uh, uh, the, 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 the patient movement, and they are lying and they are in a strip position. They're not moving their body parts to mobilize the spinal cord. And you now have come to the ER. You've seen the patient. Um, what you want to do to make sure that the patient is not having complication? Or they are not at risk for having complications. What can you do as a, as a nurse? So to think about this in the end class, first of all, think if you are the one in the situation, what can you do? If a patient is in the situation, in your common logic, what we want to do? The person is at risk for this condition. You saw you define. So what is this condition? What is this condition? This condition is a, is a condition where there is a problem happening to the to the to the spinal cord and the patient lost function. Or a surrounding nerve in this area, they are having they are at risk for very low BP that is hypotensive crisis. They are low for that. So, what can I do to prevent this patient from having this problem? What's the first thing that comes to your mind as a nurse? What comes to your mind? Let, let, let's let's brainstorm. Mm? Do you going to elevate the leg of the patient because of the um, now, hypotension to bring the blood back to the uh, Now, okay, yes, you do that, but, but let's say uh, let's say this right. You had a patient on a unit who is diabetic, and uh, the patient started to have some symptoms, and they call you to get it. What's the first thing you're gonna do to prevent complication or to to? to What's what the first thing you want to do to, to, to prevent com diabetic complication? You do the test, right? What test? What test are you gonna do? The glucose. The glucose, right? The finger stick, uh, or you do glucose test? Yes. The first you so, Now that comes to this question: If you are with this patient who is at risk for neurogenic shock, when you get to you, what the first thing you gonna do? First of all, as I said, what is neurogenic shock? What's the what are the symptoms the symptoms for neurogenic shock? What are the symptoms? Hypotension. Hypotension. Now when you get it, what's the first thing you're gonna do for the patient? Do the BP. So the BP that, that's, that's, that's what I wanted. So when you get now now yeah. this, this, this this is to say in the endless, you'll be asked the same question or similar question in thousand with, with thousand conditions. And they will list for you different answers. They will ask you a patient who is having cushion disease or he's having hypothyroid problem. The nurse was called. What the, the patient is about to have thyroid or uh, crisis. What would a nurse do? Or the patient is on vaporic acid. They, they are for having vaporic acid toxicity. What's the nurse immediate action? This person is having this problem. He has not had. He he's not having the complication, but he's about to, or he seems to be. Meaning, my concern will be what can I do to stop him from having the complication? And to answer to, to, to get that concern right, what can I do to verify his level to know where he is at, to prevent him from moving into complications? That is, I have to like put in place, put put, put in things that will prevent him from crossing over. And the first thing to do that is to do an assessment. And there will be the most specific assessment tools to do for this patient to prevent him from having the complication, the complication, and that is to check for the symptoms. So in this case, the first thing to do is to what we check the blood pressure. The first thing we do. Um, then, then the next thing is 
when we check for BP, we look for edema, and and they might have temperature loss regulation. So when you have spinal cord injury, when you are having your neurogenic shock, you cannot regulate your body temperature anymore. Those are the symptoms in there. You will, you will have low BP hypertension. You will have uh, dependent edema. You're going to have loss of temperature regulation. Your body cannot regulate your temperature anymore when you have neurogenic shock. Another thing, another thing you're going to have, um, you will start to experience postural hypertension with neurogenic shock. So you start to experience postural hypertension when you are moving from one place to another place, you might be at risk to fall because you are having hypertension and you are having movement uh, changes in your movement that will make a significant impact on your BB to become very low. Another thing under here, now then what can we do? Someone said we raise the bare hair. Yes. So when you are having organic shock, you want to raise the hair of the bear. Why? Do you want to raise the hair of the bear in the case of in the case of you're gonna shock? Why are you wanna raise the bear hair? Is to um to increase the blood pressure. Now you raise the bare hair. Uh, why in that uh, position? When you when you're ready with um. So you 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 return the blood. So. Uh huh. Okay, so. The patient is having neurogenic shock. The nurse went to raise the bare hair. While raising the bare, the patient complained of dizziness. What would the nurse do immediately? You are raising the bare hair, right? And the patient said, "Oh, I'm feeling dizzy. I feel my hair is 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 is, is moving fast. I feel dizzy. What will you do, as 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 the nurse, Shade?" You put it down. You put it. You put it down right away. As soon as the patient complains of dizziness, you bring the bear back to its normal position. That's what you do. Now, another thing is, um, we transfer the patient into a reclining wheelchair, with the back of the wheelchair recline. If they are in a in a wheelchair, we lay the chair back or we, we recline the wheelchair. To be in that reclining position for patients who have spinal cord injury and having neurogenic shock. In the end class, we can read this and they will ask in the end and they will put bigger words, bigger management in there that is not for us and we'll go and pick it up. Now, when you read the materials, you see this thing in the material talking about reclining position. They might not use wheelchair, they will say the patient is in a sofa. That in, in that we can recline a patient in a sofa. So if you did not see a wheelchair, you saw a sofa, yes, choose it as the correct answer. If the mother used the word recline, laying the patient backward, that's reclining. Still choose it as the correct answer, just in case you see it. Now, we should be ready to lock and lean the wheelchair back onto um, the knee to a fully reclined position if the patient reports that they are dizzy after the transfer. Now, if we return, if we put it in a wheelchair 
and they said a few days we should we should we should put them back resting on on our lap we should lean the wheelchair towards our lap for some time we can put them back to that position in the case of wheelchair they should remain there for some time until they can regain full consciousness so it is the opposite of what happened in the bed compared to what happened in a wheelchair the wheelchair is said transfer the victim to a wheelchair a reclining position now be ready to lock and lean the wheelchair back onto your knees to a fully reclined position just as if the patient complains of feeling dizzy after the transfer and another thing is we do not attempt to return the client to the bed meaning we're taking them from the bed to the wheelchair and the complaint that they are dizzy we cannot put them back to the bed they stay in the wheelchair we lean the wheelchair or we reclaim the, we reclaim the wheelchair and lean them on our knees until they can regain full consciousness another thing is while we are doing this we have to monitor for thrombophobitis when they are in this position we monitor for thrombophilbitis for the patient in this condition. Now, how do we monitor for thrombophilbitis becomes my next question. How can we go about to monitor a patient at risk for thrombophilbitis? How do we do that? Can someone talk to us? First of all, what is thrombophilbitis? Fibitis. What is this word? Thrombophilbitis. What is it? Uh, we have thrombocytopenia, which is low platelet, and we have Thrombophilbitis. So blood clot away from the heart um will not be thrombophilbitis. What is phibitis? So what is uh, what is phibitis? Trauma mean blood clot, right? Trauma mean blood clot. What is phibitis? In a vein. That will lead to what? Inflammation. TRS is inflammation. So this is blood clot in the vein that will lead to vein inflammation. Thrombophilbitis. Now, so how do we assess for thrombophilbitis? So we should assess a patient who is having neurogenic shock for thrombophilbitis. How do we assess for thrombophilbitis? For our patient who is having neurogenic shock, how do we do that? By by doing the assessment and look for signs and symptoms of thank you. Look for the signs and symptoms. What are the signs and symptoms of thrombophobitis? So why are the signs not thrombophobitis? 
there are three cardinal signs of this condition. We'll look at them and do not forget it anymore. What are the three signs of tremorphobitis? Eh? Now, come out the wall. What is tremorphobitis? Is there coolness? Is there so, blood clot in the vein that will lead to inflammation, right? So, with this condition, yes. what will you see as the number one symptom? The vein will be inflamed. Swelling or inflammation, you'll see that there will be swelling of the vein, right? You'll see swelling because it's, 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 it's fibritis. There will be swelling of the vein. You'll see that number one. What next can you see? We'll see absent or decreased pulses. We'll see absent or we'll see decreased pulses. The pulse will be absent or there'll be decreased pulses of that extremity. Last one, can we see? There'll be pains or what we call it'll be tender. Or tenderness will appear. Or they will feel pains. They will have swelling, and they will have decrease or absent pulses within the legs or the arm where this is occurring. So they're going to have that. Um. What about? Did they have an increased temperature or high so fever or something? They might have those ones, but these are the cardinal signs you're going to see. They're the three most cardinal signs. They might have other things like.
they will convert to spastic muscle tone after neurogenic shock, meaning if they have injury above L1 and L2. So if they have injury above L1 to L2, they will have upper motor neuron problem. That's going to happen to them when they are having this this when they have this spinal injury. So for them, um, they are going to have um, they will have there will be spasm of their muscles when they have neurogenic shock. Now, clients who have lower motor injury, they will occur below L1 to L2. So when they have upper motor, they will have from L1 to L2 upward. When they have lower motor injury, they will have below L2, L1, L2 downward. When they have above C4 or at C4, they will have phrenic nerve problem, which will impact their ventilation. So when they have lower motor neuron, they will have what we call flaccid paralysis. So under here, they will have flaccid paralysis. Paralysis will occur in here. For individuals who have the lower motor, the, the, the lower motor injury, so they will have most of the experience from L1 to L2 below. When they have upper motor, they will have upper between uh, above L1 to L2. Now, um, most of the lower motor neurons lesions involve caudal equina and other part of the uh, 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 other part of the nerve problem. So, with these injuries, you want to encourage range of motion, um, active range of motion, if possible. If it is not possible, we we'll do for them passive range of motion. And we say, what do we mean passive and active range of motions? How do we differentiate between active or passive range of motion? Active, you do it by yourself, and mm -hmm. passive, we do it for patient. Okay. Now, then, um, another problem when the spinal cord injury, there is bladder problem. We have what we call neurogenic bladder. We heard about this war. If you read a UR, it is in the UR more than three, four times. We have what we call um, spastic, spastic neurogenic. Bladder. Now, what is mean this spastic neurogenic bladder? So, for this kind of bladder, um, so there are two things happening here. So we have flaccid F L A double C I D, and we have spastic S P A S T. S P S T C I C. What do we mean? What do we mean? These two words, flaccid and spastic. What, what do we mean? The two words. So in case I said the patient have flaccid bladder, and I said the patient also the other patient has spastic bladder, flaccid and spastic bladder. What the two? words mean have you seen some a song a song with with polio yeah so in polio what are they having one of the 
Yeah, it's small. But how does how we describe polio extremity? Polio. Check it on your phone. Let's look at uh, polio on Google. Polio. So in polio, our patient will have flaccid paralysis in polio. So they will have flaccid paralysis in polio. What means by flaccid paralysis? What, what, what does the word flaccid mean? So in polio, patients who have polio, they will have flaccid paralysis, meaning they will have weak legs. And what I mean, weak legs. Now, in this case, they're going to have both spastic neurogenic bladder, and they will also have flaccid neurogenic bladder. Now, in the case of the in the case of the, 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 the spastic bladder, the S, in this condition, the client who have upper motor neuron injury will have the spastic bladder so if you have upper motor neuron injury you will have spastic neurogenic bladder now if we have lower motor neuron injury you will have flaccid bladder i repeat if you have upper motor neuron injury it will develop plastic spastic bladder after the patient has after the patient no, the bladder has 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 has, uh, has resolved. Now, that means if you have neurogenic shock, right? Let me say let me say it this way. If you have neurogenic shock, in neurogenic shock, there are two things going to happen. You might have spastic. Bladder injury after this condition result after neurogenic shock has resolved, you might have spastic neurogenic bladder injury. This means it is um, a motor neuron injury that occurring at the upper motor neuron. So when there's an upper motor neuron injury, we have spastic neurogenic bladder right after neurogenic shock. Now, in this area. Um, we will. There are two things we do for this patient. Two things can be done here. You have the male patient who had this condition, and you have the female patient who had this condition. Now we use a character for the two of them, but there are different kind of character we want to use for male and for female. In the case of male condition, we use a condom character for male. So the male will use. The condom character for male. Now, for the females, we'll go ahead. We'll use um, indwelling unit character. So we'll use for the female. They will use indwelling urinary character for the females. The male will use the condom character, while the female will use indwelling urinary character to manage bladder, their bladder. Now, for this individual, 
um when they are the urine will come out by itself it is unprojectable the urine will just flow out by itself in this case so they will not have control over the bladder urine will come out by itself uncontrollably or unpredictably they will have urine outflow now what is important under here is um to manage to manage the bladder option for male will include we can also use uh we can use we can stimulate maturation we can stimulate what we call maturation meaning urination that is we can stimulate them by, by pulling their pubic hair for male we can pull the pubic hair now in the end class this might sound different but it's it's it, it's the correct thing a male who is having neurogenic bladder he better seem to be full but he cannot pass urine what would the nurse do it says pull one of the pubic hair yes that's the correct thing you do you pull out one pubic hair that will stimulate the bladder and they will have urinary flow coming out with ease in this situation for male if we can if that did not work if that cannot work that's when we use the condom character for for uh, uh, uh for males for females we'll have to insert the character because for female they will have uncontrolled urine output so to either to help them gonna use indwelling urinary character to prevent them from swallowing the bear when they are having this condition another thing that's important here to know is now we can also experience um flaccid neurogenic bladder flaccid type this was the spastic type for male and female we can also experience flaccid neurogenic bladder in this situation it affects the lower motor neurons this spastic spas it affects the upper motor neuron and the flaccid flac affects the lower motor neuron let's know the difference between the two conditions in the case of the flaccid neurogenic bladder um for males and females we can use intermittent characterization we can use the creeds method we can use for the both of them for both male and female meaning both male and female we can use the same method which is called a create c-r-d-e the create method can be used for both male and female what is the create method what, the, what, what, what does that mean create c-r-e-d what does that mean if they say we're going to use the create method to manage a, the bladder of a female and a male patient on the unit who's having uh who are having uh, who uh, 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 who is having uh neurogenic bladder what can we do uh for them what can we do for them the creeds matter now this creed matter um it is we put we are going to put downward pressure meaning we're going to put we're going to excite downward pressure on the time bladder manually 
Meaning we put our hands on the bladder, like we are palpating the bladder, we'll feel the fullness of the bladder, it will be completely full, and we'll press our hand on the bladder, that will allow urine to pass out, to come out. So that becomes the creed's matter. We use the creed matter, meaning we are using our bare hands to put pressure on the urinary bladder manually to put our urine. Meaning we're going to press the bladder, put pressure on it like this, press it until we sort of see urine outflow. Now, these conditions, um, the functions does not differ when it comes to whether it's upper or lower neuron injuries. They are the same. Now, what is different is the management. And that's why I'm talking about the management in depth. The both conditions are the same in terms of part of physiology, but how we go about to manage it are different. You remember in the case of the spastic, for male, we use either we pulled one of the head in the pubic area to stimulate maturation, or we use the condom carrier. This is the upper motor neuron. For female, we use indwelling carrier to prevent or to manage urinary apple. For the flaccid neuronal bladder, it is the lower motor neuron in problem. We use the creed method both for male and female. So the two conditions remain the same into the part of physiology, but the management are what, what are different that we, that we must remember for these conditions. Now, um, we can use laxative daily to soften the patient's stool. We can do bowel examination every day. We can also administer basic coda to have a free bowel movement for the patient who having these neurogenic problems. Um, another thing is we can stimulate um, to avoid the vagal nerve response, which can result in bradycardia and syncope. Meaning, um, if a patient, we have a patient on our care, and uh, they are having bowel movement and other things, we can we can stimulate the fintal muscles. We can put gel on our hand. Meaning, because these conditions, when they respond to injuries, it can lead to the rectum, the rectum cannot be effective to pass two offices. So in this case, we can use our finger to go in there and stimulate the rectum in the, above the anus to above the anus to allow fishes to come out. But in the, in this case, we cannot always use our finger because in the, 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 the there's a nerve in our rectum. That nerve in there um, is what we call the, the, the nerve in the is called the vagal nerve. Now that vagal nerve, it can cause um, bradycardia, it can cause syncope. So the vagal nerve in there is V-A-G-A-L. It can cause syncope or fainting. It can, it can cause bradycardia. Bradycardia. Now because it can cause syncope or bradycardia, we want to make sure we can use electronic stimulator or stimulant to stimulate the bowel to pass then using our finger because our finger might might disturb or might cause vagal nerve problem then um 
we have have a developed bladder and bowel training to prevent other complications. We do not just want to always put our hands in and put our feces or pull a pubic hair to put our urine. We gotta do a bowel and we got bladder and bowel training exercises. What time they can pull? What time they can you know they can be uh they can be able to pass urine? We gotta have a time in the day to do that in in, in order for us to stop uh just doing it at any point in time, which is not cool for our patient. Any question? Any question? So with spinal cord injuries, what are those things we need? What are those devices we need when a patient has spinal cord injury? So, Shade, uh, you were, you, you are the nurse in our family. And our grand, our grandfather had a spinal cord injury. And uh, we are somewhere around, far away from the city. And then uh, we call you to get an advice from you. What can we do? Who are those supposed to call? What are, what can we use? What are those things we should call? We should buy to try to use them to help our grandfather who has the spinal cord injury. Let's name few. Okay, we name few of the things. Eh? Let's say he's let's say he's in the hospital. He about to go home. He's having spinal cord injury, or he, he has spinal cord injury. We've already immobilized him. Now we about to see what all those things will do for him. Some people can use crutches. Some people can use yeah. I'm not hearing Erica. Your phone sounding different. Some people can use um. Now. We will get the person to a physical therapy or occupational therapist. Uh, for spinal, we do. Uh, we do physical. Though. Why not occupational? Because uh, occupational in ADR is in the person. Mm -hmm. We 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 trying to for the person to gain. Within their, uh, uh, that is like so can they are they able to do their own occupational work or uh, can they do the work that OT will do for them? No. So we we'll use both occupational and physical and physical therapy for them. They will need both of it. They will need both occupational and physical therapies. Um, we can also get them braces, right? They can use braces. They can use braces um, to help them out. Now, we got to link them to social services for financial resources, home care, like home health aid workers can come to their aid, and other things. We got to explain to them the effect and severity of the spinal cord injuries, and we got to Tell the client about whether to know that they're having quadriplegia or hemiplegia. Well, know that it will provide for them assistance of what are they if they're having if they're having quadriplegia, we help them. If they're having paraplegia, we help them. I'm not hearing you.
So we can use for them the color traction, which could be very helpful for them. Somebody phone them on me talking, please put your phone on me. Now, somebody can have they can have spinal cord problem. Um, they can have spinal sorry, they can have spinal shock. They can have spinal shock. Uh, now I will leave you with an assignment that you will do, and we'll come back here tomorrow. We might have a class tomorrow or Sunday. I'll post in the group chat. Um, I want you to look at this to look out for me. Um, the spinal cord is divided into different section, so I want you to look out when there is an injury occurring to C1, C2, C3 to C4. What are they having? So when there's an injury occurring to thoracic vertebra, what are the symptoms or, or what are the kind of problem they're gonna have? When there is injury occurring to the lumbar vertebra, which body part is affected? When there's injury occurring to the sacral vertebra, which body part is affected? Or which body parts are, are affected? So you look at those look at those things when you come back tomorrow, we'll look at them.